All right, we're going to jump right in it. So if you've got your Bibles, meet me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. If you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high. Uh, and then one of the guys will be able, one of the guys, one of the gals will be able to get you a copy of God's Word. If you don't own a Bible, keep your hand raised high and keep the copy that we're handing out to you. Let it be our gift to you. Um, but if you do own a Bible but you just forgot it, go ahead and use it for today and you can drop it off on the shelf on your way out. Romans chapter 2, if you are just joining us, this is week 9 of a rather long series in which we're going to be walking through Romans for 70 weeks. Um, to kind of catch you up to speed here briefly, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, was primarily Paul coming down on the Gentiles. And if, you're, if you don't understand what a Gentile is, a Gentile is anyone who is not an ethnic Jew, who was not born as a Jewish person. So that's most of us are, are Gentiles. And he's not coming down upon them because they're Gentiles. He says, God's wrath is not being revealed because of their race. God's wrath is being revealed because they rejected God. They rejected truth. In fact, the language that Paul uses is that they've suppressed the truth about God. And so what you can think is the Jewish people are hearing this going, yeah, Paul, get the Gentiles. Well, then when Paul transitions into chapter 2, what we've been looking at the past two weeks is he's saying, wait a minute. Not only is his wrath being revealed towards Gentiles, but his judgment is also upon Jewish people who had the law. Or religious people, which we said we use it in a pejorative way, those who were trying to live the imperatives of the scripture apart from biblical repentance and trust in God's grace. And he says, you're going to get it too. And then now when we get to the, 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 the third week of chapter 2, what we have is Paul begins to paint pictures of two different groups. One group is primary Jewish people, and he says, you guys will sin even though you have the law, but you're going to be judged. And then the Gentiles who don't even have the law, they're going to be judged as well. And so what Paul is saying is um, God is going to judge universally, that he doesn't favor the Jews more than the Gentiles or the Gentiles more than the Jews. Jew, the Jews. Satati again. Um, the Jewish people. He's saying these don't have any favoritism, but there is a standard of which God has. And so that's where we enter into in chapter 2, verses 12. Um, that's where we'll begin. Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers who do not, excuse me, the doers who, uh, who will, dang it. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying um, both parties will be judged by a standard. Here's what this is hard for us. In our culture now, we are getting rid of standards. I don't know if this is something that I'm just noticing now or this has been going on for a while, but in definitely the last 8 to 10 years, you, you see it. You see it in education. Um, it used to be that if you were going to go to college, you had to be the smartest, the hardest working people. You would write uh, an application, an essay, and you would submit it and hope that a particular university would say that you were accepted. Like that was the only way that you were getting into college, and very few people were getting admitted into colleges, where now everyone can go to college. There's a college everywhere. There's a college where you can go to. There's a college online. There's a college in your basement. I mean, there's colleges kind of like everywhere. I was listening to an advertisement the other day that says there is a grant that's millions of dollars over some scholarship money that will go towards anybody. Doesn't matter how bad or how good your grades were in high school. I'm like, really? Like, that, that's what we're doing now? And I get it. We're trying, we want everyone to be educated. But that means there is some hard work that goes into it. Standards used to be really high. Like, you had to work really hard to be really smart to go to college or, or be an athlete, right? 
just being honest. Those two people were the ones that got into college. Now it's like, ah, anybody can get into it, right? We see this in coaching. We see this in sports. We see this in even education at the lower levels. And, like, you know, you, your kid gets the you showed up today on time award. Like, I got it again. And it's like, really? Like, is, is, that, is that where we're at now? Every kid is a star. Every kid is great. Every kid gets a trophy. And it's kind of, it's just a lie, right? And we, we do it. We, we talked about parenting a little bit a few weeks ago, but we tell our kids, you're great, you're great, you're great. And they're not, all right? And I, I'm not saying that some of your kids aren't. I'm just saying just statistically, most of them are going to be like us, just very average, normal people who get up and go to work and say, Lord, I don't really like my job, but it's good. It's to your glory. We thank you for it. But we're not great, right? We're just normal people, but um, we don't, we don't, we're not raising our kids that way, and our culture, has, it, its effects on our cultures, we've lowered standards. There was an article that was written by Maura Pennington in the, the Forbes magazine online, and the article was titled, If Everybody's a Winner, How Could We Tell Who the Winner Is? And she's just saying, it's so diluted. What we're doing is we are hosing our kids for the future. When we tell our kids, you are amazing, you are amazing, you are amazing, you can do no wrong, wrong. as long as you char, like, try as hard as you can, then that's what matters the most. And you know what? Who cares about standards? You're great. Well, then they become adults, and they go get a job, and they go, you're not very good. It's like, what do you mean I'm not very good? I'm great. I've been told it my entire life. By who? My parents. They lied, right? <laughs> and they weren't honest with you. In fact, here's what she says, uh, speaking to that. She goes, it's a horrible thing, in fact, because it sets us up for failure and disenchantment. Now, think of, think of what a monstrous revelation the true nature of Santa Claus is, which I'm kind of nervous to read this at the 7 o'clock service. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> now, think how psychologically damaging it would be to find that your own self is a figment of your parents, teachers, and coaches' imaginations. See, just think about what that would be like. She goes on to talking about, in somewhat of a slack, slapstick humor way, about Pluto. She's all poor Pluto who finds out, I'm really not a planet. And getting mocked by all the other planets, you're not really a planet, right? This whole time, Pluto thought it was a planet. And I'm more serious, and she's going, we are going to be hoes. We're going to realize, wait a minute, this whole time, we had a lowered standard. Therefore, we thought we had reached a standard, and we're going to stand before some moral authority um, someone who's going to look at our giftedness and skills and talents and going to go, no way, no way. And, and um, what Paul is saying is, take it outside of the marketplace or outside of education or even politics or sports or art. Let's just, let's just put it in the realm of all of life and how God will look at us. And God has a standard, and it's holy, and it's perfect, and it's excellent. And he says, none of us can live up to this standard. And that there will be many of us who will stand before God. It's the same thing Jesus says in the book of Matthew. And, and we'll stand before God and go, how could this not happen? How am I not getting in on this? Meaning, I've been amazing my entire life. And God's going to go, this was the standard. It's this beautiful law that was in accordance to his character. And we didn't live up to it. Paul has been hammering this point verse after verse and chapter after chapter as we look paragraph after paragraph in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 all the way till we get to Romans chapter 3 because he's trying to make it unbelievably clear that there is no way that you or I, any human being, Jew or Gentile, white or black, educated or not educated, will be able to be made right before God by their own ability because God's standard is excellent and he will judge us according to that standard of which you or I, we cannot live up to 
And he's trying to give us that. And that's not popular because it's bad news. And we said this, it's going to be bad news, bad news, bad news for several weeks. And, and just the climate, literal climate of our culture, we said it's perfect because we're hearing bad news and all of a sudden it's 109 degrees. It works perfect for us in Arizona. It's like, you know what? The weather's bad. The news is bad. It's just bad. We should stay in Romans for 60 more weeks, right? But we start with bad news because when you have bad news, it's the only way that you can understand good news. So Paul starts with the bad news because he knows what proceeds from that is good news. We need to see and understand our God and our situation. If you want to destroy the gospel, if you want the, the gospel to be not even just diluted, but completely destroyed, um, do two things. Minimize the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. If you minimize the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, you have no Christ, biblical Christianity. You have no gospel. You have no gospel. Um, this is when people say, I only want to understand a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of grace, but I don't really want to understand a God of wrath, a God of judgment, and a God of justice. Therefore, you don't want the totality of who God is. And, and Paul's saying, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to give it to you clear and honest. And so when he begins to unpack the character of God, um, an attribute of God of his judgment, he's saying he's going to judge all according to a standard. Now, here's the thing when it comes to us as people because of our sinfulness. There's two groups that Paul has here. The first group understands his standard and his holiness. And instead of saying, God, we are separated, we need help, that what they begin to do is minimize their own sin. And once you begin to minimize your own sin, therefore now you can live up to that standard and they think they're okay with God. So the first thing Paul puts is people minimize their sin. And the second group of people, what they do is they look at the standard and they go, ah, is that really a standard? Is God really God? And so they relativize it. Meaning it's something in their conscience. So one minimizes sin, the other one relativizes sin, and lastly, the gospel will ultimately and truly, perfectly reveal sin in our lives. So Paul starts first with the group that minimizes. Verse 12, for all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. That's one group. That's people who didn't have the law of God. People who were not born Jewish did not have the Mosaic law, which we'll talk about in a second. And the next group, he says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Those are Jewish people who have the Mosaic law. Now, there's two words that we're going to have here that Paul's going to use for the first time so far in Romans that I think we need to define a little bit because he's going to continue to use these as the weeks continue to progress. And the first word is law. You're going to hear Paul talk about law. Um, oftentimes, when Paul's talking about law, what he's talking about is the Mosaic law. This was the law of God that was given to Moses, to the people of God. It was his holy instruction. It was how to live in response to God's character and who he is and what he's done on their behalf. The law was never meant to be good news, right? We've established that good news is not something we do. Good news is an event that has happened. In the Old Testament, the good news was that God himself and his sovereign grace reached into, came into Egypt, and sovereignly by his power and might and goodness and grace redeemed the people God's people out of Egypt. And that was an act of salvation in which God did for them. And then after that, on their way, preparing them for the promised land, of which they were to be witnesses into the world, he gave them his instruction. And it came in response to good news. In Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 and also in Leviticus, also in Deuteronomy, God gives them this law and how they ought to live. And so when Paul begins to talk about this, he's saying this was the law, but the law was never meant to save, to justify, to make right. Other times when Paul talks about the law, he says, I'm not under the law. 
And what he's saying by that is Jesus has fulfilled the law. And there's certain things about the Mosaic law that, that don't, that don't uh, pertain to us, certain diet laws and whatnot. But he's saying, but there is a universal law of God that all people are under. And so there's a universal law that's written in our hearts, which we'll get to in verse 14 and 15, and there's the law of God. The second word that Paul uses for the first time, and he will continue to use in Romans, is the word justify, or you'll hear uh, justified or justification. It's a legal term that is used in the courtroom that is, is a person is acquitted of their wrongdoing. When Paul uses it in Galatians, when he uses it in Romans, he's talking about an act of which God himself makes us right with him that he is the just judge, and therefore he has to punish sin, but he sent his son Jesus um, to take the place for us, and so thereby, only in Christ Jesus are we acquitted of our sins. Therefore, we are justified. It's a one-time act of which God does it sovereignly by his own grace. And Paul's going to get into that, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, um, talking about this justification. So here, he begins to talk about the law, but he's talking about it first in, in verses 13 to the group of people that minimizes it. The group of people who had the law, who had God's explicit um, communication of the character of God and how we are to live, the standard of living. And the only way, apart from Christ, that they are able to live up to it is to minimize it. Here's what he says in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, if you've been around redemption for a couple years, one of the things we started with when we, one of the books we first started teaching when we became redemption was the book of James. And when you read this, you have to think about the book of James because James takes this one verse in, in 2.13 and he impacts it and gives color to it in James chapter 1, verse 22. So no need to turn there. I'm going to read it from you and it should be on the screen. Chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Here's what James says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks in, into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here's what James is saying. Don't just hear the word. Do it. Just don't memorize scripture. Do it. He goes, if you don't, if you say that you're, you're a hearer of the word, if you say you're a Christian, if you say you love God, but you don't live like that, you're like a person who looks in the mirror and there's just, you just, you don't look good at all, but you look at yourself and you go, I look good. That's right. Right? And you go around your day and he's going, no, like you forgot what you look like. It didn't look that good. Right? But to you, it does. And so when Paul, when Paul talks about that in Romans, he's saying, listen, um, you, you understand God's standard, but I don't think you realize you're not living up to it because he requires perfection, his holiness. There's no spot or blemish with God. And the standard by which he judges is on that holiness of which we are not. And yet there were a group of people going, no, 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 we're doing it. And the only way to get there is to minimize your sin. The only way that you feel like you can stand before God is to say, yes, we don't do the big ones. And this is where I think it, it hits us as Christians. We, we don't do the big sins, whatever those big sins are that we look at, I and mean, we don't do that. I mean, we got some stuff in our life, but what we do is we, we, we start comparing ourselves horizontally. Like, like, I'm bad, but man, have you seen her? Like, she's bad. She's, let's, let's put our attention up. She needs Jesus, right? Like, we, we look at other people and go, that's horrible. We're not there. We are not there. And Paul's saying, if you're just um, a hearer of the word, I mean, you just know the word, the law, but you're not doing it, 
you're not living in response to the gospel, there's not evidence, then, then you, 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 you can think that you're right before God. You're not escaping God's judgment. And the way that is like for us as Christians, it's the profession of faith. There are so many people that take their assurance of their faith before God is because they made a profession. I profess that Christ is Lord. That's how I know that I'm a Christian. And I know this gets sensitive when we begin to talk about your salvation experience. And hear me on this. I'm not at all neglecting your experience. God saves people in incredible ways, and it's different for different people. But nowhere in the scripture, you've tried to find it, does it ever say that a person knows that they are a Christian because of a profession that they made at some point, at some camp, because some aisle that they walked down. Now, I'm not saying that walking down the aisle was bad or signing a card or raising your hand. No, God, if, if that was genuine, God had already started the work in your life before that. Um, Paul is saying there are many people in this room and in this world that profess that they're Christian, and yet they are like the man who looks in the mirror and goes, I can do whatever I want. Um, and he says, you cannot have any assurance. You can't. Now hear me on this. Paul's not saying that a Christian is one who's perfect. He's not saying a Christian is one who doesn't struggle with sin for long periods of time. In fact, some of us as Christians, we will struggle with the same sin for the rest of our lives. But there's constant repentance. Paul is not saying that this person um, doesn't have failures. This person never fails in the big ways. He's not saying that a Christian won't do that. We have the story of the story of godly people who fell in major ways. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying what's consistent with the men and women of the Bible and the men and women who love Jesus is there's always repentance. Not just I feel bad for the consequence of my sin. I hate the sin in general because I love my Savior. Um, What Paul is talking about is people who minimize it, and we all do it. All of us, we minimize our sin. And here's why we do it. It's what James had said. He says, because we're deceived. To some degree, every single one of us, whether you're a Christian or not, you are deceived. And it's one of the hardest things to, to notice about yourself because you're deceived. And it takes someone who loves you. If you're married, it's probably your spouse to tell you this. A, a couple weeks ago, me and Holly were talking, and she pointed out something in me that I thought, there's no way that could be true. I don't know if you guys ever had that, like a roommate or a spouse. Like, are you, like some things you go, yeah, that's true, that's true, I do do that, and yeah, I need to work on that. Praise the Lord, thanks for telling me that, right? <laughs> she's, she's, she goes, I think you're in self-denial. And when you hear those words, you're like, what, I'm in self-denial? And like, honestly, it was so, to me, I just couldn't see it. I was so blinded that I thought, you know what? You clearly don't know Holly, right? And I walk away, and you ever had that, Lord? I need to pray for Holly. (laughs) (laughs) We need to pray for her. She can't see. And then, all of a sudden, the Spirit hits me and goes, that's you. It's one of the most embarrassing moments, but the best moments to be in. is when the Spirit of Christ and the people of God and the Word of God all coming together say, that's who you are. It's looking at the mirror and going, "I I look totally okay. Walking away and realize, bam, no, you don't. And going, looking back at the mirror going, Oh, right? <laughs> that's what it looks like? That's, that's, we, we, we will find ways to minimize our sin, especially if people around us are, quote-unquote, worse than what we are. It's the only way that we can feel good. And, 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 and this is church people. Like, most of us, we judge our standing before God. And so our walk with God, what happens is people say, how are you doing spiritually? We usually respond by activity. If it's good, it's like, I'm doing really good. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm taking communion twice a day. Everything's looking good. Praise the Lord. And if it's not, it's, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this. Hardly ever do you, how is your spiritual? I'm trusting in the work of Christ. I'm resting in the gospel, right? 
we're, we're afraid of becoming too spiritual to say like the right answer as a gospel person who believes in Christ. But we usually trust in our activities, and usually when we don't think we're living as good Christians is because we're not doing well. And so we take certain sins and we minimize them. There's an incredible book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. And the book is a hard read, not because it's so dense or theological. It's because it's really talking to Christians and how there's certain sins we look at and go, ah, that's not that bad. It's, it's happened to you before. Someone's come to confess sin to you, and it's something you do, but you don't think it's bad. And so to, to ease your guilt, you go, no, 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 no. You think that's, that's not sin? Goodness, if that's sin, then I'm sin. Hey, look, we're in this together, right? I mean, like, it's, that's, that's the way we do it. And sometimes we're just so blinded we can't see it. So um, I'm colorblind, and, and not like a dog. Everyone says, are you like, like a dog? No, I'm not a dog. Um, but it's gotten worse as I've gotten older. So like orange and red and red and green and green and gray and orange and yellow. I'm into a bunch of colors, right? And so the, the other night we're in our backyard, and my son and I were hitting uh, uh, wiffle balls, and it got stuck in the tree. And then my wife's there, and I'm like, where's it at? I can't see it. And she goes, it's right there. I'm like, I can't see it. It's a red ball, and the leaves are green. And I'm like, I can't see it. And she goes, it's right there. So now we're going back and forth. I'm like, you say that, but I don't see it, right? <laughs> And so I take a bat, and I just poke in the area where she says it's at, and boom, the ball comes up. Would you, look at you. Look at that. <laughs> like, there's the ball, right? And, um, and she goes, it was right there the whole time. And I'm like, I can't see it. And like, now I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, how dare you make fun of me? I have a disability. <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to make her feel bad, right? And, and, and here's the thing. She, she goes, just, just because you couldn't see it doesn't mean it wasn't there. And, and I think when it comes to our sin that we minimize, just, we don't, just because we don't see it doesn't mean that it's not there. And so when God takes his standard of holiness, even though we've minimized it to the point that we don't even acknowledge it anymore, we don't even see it as sin, um, on that day, which Paul has been talking about, God's going to say, it was right there the whole time. Um, some people, and, and this is where it pertains to many of us as Christians, that when we're not living in step with the gospel, what we'll do is we'll look at that. We'll look at our lives that way to be able to justify, to make sure that we're living up to God's standards as long as we don't do the big ones. And Paul goes, it's not just the big ones, it's the little ones, it's sin. God's holy, his standards are perfect. Don't minimize it. And you say, okay, well, if God is going to judge those who the law has been revealed to, right? Jewish people, they've had the Mosaic law, um, does that mean that he's not going to judge those who haven't had the law? Because if that's the case, then mum's the word, right? Like, don't tell anybody. And that would be like a total new strategy for evangelism for us. It's like, hey, don't tell anybody about Jesus, right? <laughs> we just come to church and we sit, right? <laughs> Do you know? You don't know? If you don't know, don't worry about it. Don't ask, right? No, that, that's not it. He's saying there are some people that will be judged by the law which was revealed to them explicitly through the Mosaic law. But then Paul transitioning goes, um, not, those, they minimize it to live up to God's standard, but there's another group of people that it's the universal law that's been written in their hearts, and what they do to get, to get by it apart from Christ is they relativize it. Here, here's what he says in verse 14 and 15. He says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Here's what he's saying. He goes, the Gentiles, he's saying, think about the Gentiles. They don't have the Mosaic law, but they have a universal law. They have a law that's been written on their hearts. This is what all of us have. 
Part of it is because we're creating the image of God, the Imago Dei, that though we've been tainted by sin, there is a part of us that when we look at certain things, we go, that's beautiful, that is good. And there's certain things we look at and go, that's wrong, that is not beautiful. I should do this and I shouldn't do this. And so he's saying when you go into these particular people groups and cultures, what you see is things that they say is good is usually consistent with the rest of the world. This is even from our experience and evidence as missionaries when they go into jungles and places where other civilizations have not gone to. There's certain broad categories that are consistent with the world. You shouldn't murder. You shouldn't take another man's wife. You shouldn't steal. They see these things. And that's what Paul is talking about. But what he begins to talk about, how they relativize it, is it says that their conscience bears witness because God has written on their hearts. Now, I want to be clear here. There is a, there's prophecy in Jeremiah Um, chapter 31, where Jeremiah talks about how God will write his law on our hearts. This is different. Um, When Jeremiah is talking about, he's speaking of the Spirit of Christ that will be poured out upon us, that God will give us a knowledge apart from ourselves, something that just just not given to us by birth, but by rebirth of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is talking about is common grace, meaning it's common and everybody receives it. God gives it to us, and it becomes a moral compass. The difference between the Mosaic law, which cannot be changed, altered at all, cannot be seared, our conscience can. And we know that from just experience. That we know there are certain things that we used, we used to say, I will never do that. To the point where we go, I might do that. And like, I love doing this. Right? And there's this kind of, we've gone from here to here to here. What Paul is saying is there's, there's this conflicting thoughts, like internally, that our conscience is saying, don't do this, do this, this is good, this is not. And it says that one, it, 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 there's, a, there's a guilt that says don't do that, and when you do that, there's guilt. But then it not only um, accuses us, saying you shouldn't have done that, now it excuses you like, here, go ahead. Meaning your conscience is being, it's just being seared. And what happens with sin is we begin to go, huh, is there really a God? Is there a moral standard? Is there at all an absolute truth? And if we just do away with that and we have truth, but in the lowercase t, what we do is we relativize it. We make sin very relative. And we go, it may be sin for you, but it's not sin for me. Okay, the first one, minimizing sin, that's church-going folk. That's what we do that we need to repent of. Um, Outside of the church and sometimes within the church, what we have pervasive in our culture is, is what we would call just relative thought um, what we would say is there's no truth to be known. There's no capital T truth. There's no absolute truth. Um, and this is something that is taught to us implicitly from all the way through grade school and even more explicitly once you go to the university, um, especially if you go to ASU. What you are taught is that truth is something that comes from a social construct. And all that means is the way that we can understand truth is by our own experiences. And so if there's certain experiences we have, then we can say that's truth. But it's only truth for us in this community, in this area, at this time, in this year. There's no absolute truth. Therefore, when you look at the scripture, which is God's final and highest degree of authority of which we have, that it would look at the scripture, look at the great story from Genesis to Revelation of God's redeeming acts in history in the work and through the work of his son Jesus that is true for all people and all places and at all times and all races would go, no way. And we've heard this before. I'm glad that religion works for you. And I'm glad that works for you, but it's not for me. Um, I'm glad God works for you or your God, and so it becomes relative. And even sin begins to get that way. And we go, that, that's just a relative thought to, to even think of that. And so 
if that's true, which it's not, but um, we, we have that understanding in our culture that, that truth, lowercase t, is a social construct. That means our experience dicta- dictates this truth. Well, as soon as our experiences change, our truth has to change. And then our experiences change again, and our truth has to change. When Paul begins to talk about this, people apart from God, apart from arresting in Christ, understanding moral absolute beauty and authority and holiness, he says, then you go, that used to be sin, or that used to be wrong, but that's, that's not for me. Like, I'll agree with you on the big things. Yeah, I shouldn't murder. Like, everyone would agree that if I walked out of here and I was walking across the street, let's say, to get a diet Dr. Pepper at QT, crushed ice, right? And I just saw some guy, and he was in line. I'm like, hurry up, and he wouldn't leave, and I punched him in the face. People were like, dude, that wasn't right, man. You're a pastor, <laughs> right? Like, you would go, that, that's wrong. Um, we would agree with that universally. But then there are certain things I would say, and this happens with a lot of people in a young church like ours where a lot of people are uh, becoming Christian for the first time. And it happens in relationships. In fact, this happens the most with our friends who are not Christian. And they go, okay, you guys are getting married. Yes, we're getting married. How come you guys are not having sex? Well, we're going to. Why not now? Because we're not married. That's stupid, Right? Why would you wait? And they try to give beautiful words of the gospel. And no matter what they say, their friends are going, yeah, right? And they, what the language is, they'll go, oh, you guys are traditional. <laughs> or you guys are old school. Like, oh, okay, you guys are back then. Oh, that's cute. That's cool. Kind of antique-ish, right? I, I see where you're going with that, <laughs> you know? And, 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 there, and it happens a lot. Like, man, why would you ever live? I mean, things have changed, and therefore truth has changed then. Well, when you take that in sin... Now we get to define what sin is. There's a great deal of autonomy. We become a law unto ourselves. And so God's standard, even though it's still written in our hearts, it becomes, it becomes suppressed. This is what Paul begins to talk about in Romans chapter 1, and tw- uh, verse 20, and chapter 2, verse 1. He goes, you're without excuse. You're without excuse. Your conscience has even taught you um, sin, but you've suppressed it now that it excuses you. Um, some people minimize it in order to live up to God's standards. And then most of our culture, they relativize it. All of it is we naturally have an innate desire to be made right with a holy being, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we will do anything but the very thing that's, ne- that's necessary. We will do any and everything. Either we'll drown, drown things out. We've done that. You can even just think about your own life, even as a believer, that you can say there are certain things 10 years ago that you said no a Christian, a God-fearing Christian ought not to live this way. And you find yourself here now going, this is what I do. Some of it might have been maturity because you just read the scripture wrong and you've grown, but majority of it is just you becoming numb and we become more and more numb as a culture, as Christians, to what the word of God says. And I believe Paul can put us all in that situation. Either we're minimizing it or relativizing. We're looking at God's word and saying, it's not going to read me. I may read it. I may know it, but I'm not going to let it shape me. I'm not going to let the spirit of Christ shape me. I'm not going to let the community of Christ, his men and women together in fellowship with me, shape me. We become laws unto ourselves. And Paul says, okay, here's the picture. Holiness, standard, excellent. We're not. All of Romans especially the first three or four chapters, is getting to this point. Paul is saying it is bad news. The reason why it sounds like bad news, because it is. And we don't like hearing that. 
Because what it says is, in this equation, we are the sinful people, God is holy, and there is a gap between the two of us, and we cannot make things right no matter how hard we try. Nothing within us, nothing outside of us, no particular family or teaching could make this right. Paul is trying to get us all in that situation. Paul is trying to get us all to acknowledge that truth. Because like we said, when there's bad news, good news proceeds. And the way Paul wraps up this section is not only looking at those who minimize sin and those who relativize sin, but how the gospel reveals it. So he says in verse 16. On that day, that's the day of judgment, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's saying on that day, that day that we stand before God, he says, according to my gospel, Paul is not saying that it's his, he owned it. He's not saying that it's a different gospel. He's talking about true biblical good news. True biblical good news, meaning there's bad news before there's good news. What Paul is saying is those, and I would put it on pastors and ministers throughout the world, who start by saying, um, this is what the gospel is. God loves you. He has a great plan for you, and he sent his son Jesus. There's grace and there's mercy and there's love, right? All true, but why would he have to send his son Jesus if he's just giving grace and mercy? Because if we don't understand his justice, his standards, if we don't understand his judgment, if we don't understand his wrath, then the cross seems trivial. It seems very trivial. There's no need for God to go to the cross and bleed for us if we're just naturally good people and God just happens to love us and therefore he sent Jesus to do what? To come get us? Like Jesus is not a babysitter who's like, hey, I'm coming to pick you up from school. It's time to go to heaven. Get your lunch, pal. Right? Like that, that, that's not gospel. The gospel is, here it is, you definitely loved by God, created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. He loves you. He really does. You have value and beauty and worth, not necessarily within yourself, but from the one who created you. But you, me, all of humanity, we are sinners. We are tainted by sin. And sin has affected our ability to reach up and reach out to a holy God. And therefore, there is this chasm between the two of us. And there's a cavity within our heart that cannot be satisfied or fulfilled with anything in this world. No political party, no philosophical teaching, no education, no training, no art. Nothing could satisfy it. And Paul is saying that's the situation we're in. But God, in his holiness, knowing that wrath and judgment is coming upon us because of our sin, he did the unthinkable and that he sent his son Jesus. This is Paul's gospel. This is the story of the Bible. He sent Jesus to do for us what we never could do for ourselves. And he put himself in a position that all of us deserve to be. And on a cross, God took the holiness, um, justice, and wrath and judgment of God that was meant towards you and I, and he placed it upon his son Jesus. When we understand that, we get this. Mercy and grace are optional. The only way that you receive it is if you opt in by belief. The only way you can opt into this is by belief. It's optional. Wrath, judgment is inevitable. It's inevitable. And then when you see, according to Paul's gospel, according to the gospel of the Bible, when you see the good news is that you were so separated from God without the ability to reach out to God, but God in grace and in love, he sent his son Jesus to take on the full penalty of your sin and my sin and every single person that would believe in him, that's when grace becomes amazing. It becomes amazing. Because if I'm not really a sinner, and it's just relative, or I've minimized my sin, the cross seems trivial. It really does. And all of us have been in that position. I've, I've talked to plenty of people who say, you know, I wish I had a story like yours, you know, like where 
you know, I was an idiot for a while, and then God saved me, which I'm always really like, oh, wow, you thought I was an idiot? And, <laughs> but what people are communicating is, I wish I were worse, then I would understand grace. That's because you minimized your sin. Somehow you think there's people in this world that are worse than you. I remember listening to uh, Philip Yancey talk about, it. everyone thinks about the worst person in the world. He goes, think about the worst person in the world and remove him, the next worst person, remove her, him, and the next, the next, the next. Eventually you're going to get to yourself. So why don't you just start there? And then you really understand God's grace. Um, when we understand that, the cross is meaningful. And we know that we will stand before God, as Paul says, and he's going to know the secrets. And he's going to reveal the secrets. And we're going to be okay with this only because we'll be so hidden in Christ, we'll say, yeah. Because only in response to the gospel now, when we go back and we see God's standard, we don't have to minimize our sin. We can boldly confess our sin to God and to each other. Because the reason why we minimize it in the first place is because we don't have comp- we're not believing the gospel. And therefore, we have to be good. And so we minimize our sin. We, we, we tuck it away. But when you understand the gospel, that Christ has already paid the penalty of your sin, you confess your sin. In fact, s- confessing sin and repentance is actually a means in how you grow as a Christian to understand how to live out God's standard. You can be honest because you understand an identity in Christ. And then you don't have to relativize your sin because you understand absolute beauty and moral and morality and a standard of God. And you realize, yeah, you're right. I never could have lived up to that. But that's why God sent his son Jesus. And I don't trust in my ability to live up to it. I trust in his ability on my behalf. And now the law and the word of God is not something that we use as a means to make ourselves right before God of others. But we use it as a means to live for God and be witnesses of his beauty and of his truth to the world around us. That's what it means to be a Christian, to live in response to the gospel of Christ Jesus. Amen. If we do away with judgment, we do away with wrath, we do away with good news. You can't get one without the other. But what we see on the cross is both God's love, his holiness, and his grace, and his wrath coming together. And what God does is he reaches down into humanity again and begins a new work in the church and brings us up by grace to understand and live out his excellence. I'm going to close with... uh, with quoting from you guys, my favorite rapper, um, his name's Propaganda, talking about God's excellence. Here's what he says. This is the only response when we understand the gospel. He says, but worth, value, and beauty is not determined by some innate quality, but by the length for which the owner would go to possess them, and broken and ugly things just like us are stamped excellent. With ink tapped in wells of divine veins, a system of redemption that can only be described as perfect, a seal of approval, fatal debt removal, promise prominent perfect priest, brilliant design system, redemption for our kinsmen, can only be described as perfect with excellent execution, and I'm in awe, the only one truly excellent, the only source of excellence, we are declared excellent only by his decree with his system, and the only accurate response is awe. When we see what God has done for us in Christ in response to his holiness, the only response we have as Christians is to live all of our lives for all of Jesus in worship. Amen? Let's pray.